Well, well, let's look at the book of Romans. Let's open up and let's talk about this new epistle that we're going through. As I started reading some commentaries on the book of Romans, I have one in particular that I really love. It's Donald Gray Barnhouse's book of commentaries on Romans, and it's four volumes. I believe it's four or five. But his first, the first chapter, I'm not kidding you, just the first chapter alone, it's probably this thick. I mean, it's just intense, and it's all good. I mean, it's just all, really, I should just be reading it to you guys. But it would, it would be taking us probably about three hours just to read what he's written just on the first chapter. And then there's another commentary that has some great stuff, too. And, and I feel like my head's going to go, I'm going to blow a gasket. I'm just thinking, wow, the, the impact and, and the depth of this book is very overwhelming. It was through this book that the likes of Martin Luther came to a, a place of deep faith as he read the just will live by faith and it changed his perspective of God and his relationship with God. John Wesley had a, a conversion experience through this book as did Augustine and the three of them changed the, the whole texture of Europe, if you will. Just these three men and it happened from this book. And, and so once again we see the power of God to take these words that are in Scripture, His words, change lives, and then change the world. And as I was reading about the, the work that God did in these men, I, I got excited. I started thinking, wow, God, what if there's another Martin Luther here? What if there's another you know, John Wesley here, Augustine, what if you want to change the landscape of the Inland Empire and you're going to use what's shared in this book the way you had used it before to change our lives and, and to give us a heart and vision for what you want to do. And I just got very excited, and at the same time, I, I got very overwhelmed, thinking, oh no, I'm supposed to teach this book, you know? And I... And finally, I just gave up and said, okay, God, your Holy Spirit has to do the work anyway. I'll read, I'll study, I'll present the things that you've presented to me, but your words are enough. Your words are enough to change. You don't need me. I don't have to give you something deep and profound. It's there. It's already deep and profound. Really, we should just be reading it, and we will. I wanted to share what Martin Luther wrote about this. He said, This letter is the principal part of the New Testament and the purest gospel, which surely deserves the honor that a Christian should not merely know it by heart, word for word, but should be occupied with it daily as the daily bread of his soul. For it can never be read too often or too well. And the more it is used, the more delicious it becomes and the better it tastes. We should commit it to memory, word by word. I feel like challenging us all. You guys want to memorize a book? Let's memorize the book of Romans. But that's scary. God's got to put that on your heart. Not me. I don't want it to be obligation. Sam told you, but 
what if we wanted to memorize this book? I remember I was going to school with a, a girl in high school who memorized the book of Galatians, and that was overwhelming to me. And sure enough, she'd just sit there and start reciting the book of Galatians, and I was like, how do you do that? I don't remember my name sometimes, and you're saying this whole book. What the gospel is, and what the good news of Jesus Christ has been represented to the Christian faith, it is encapsulated in this book. Romans has been called the gospel of grace. And where Paul in his other epistles writes to people that he has knowledge of, the church of Corinth that he resided in, or Ephesus or Galatians, or to Philemon, someone he knows, or Timothy, or the church in Thessalonica. All these other epistles that we have are him talking to people about the things that they're addressing or dealing with. But in the book of Romans, he is yet to make it there. Now, we left the book of Acts and know that he did make it there, but this book was written in between 53 and 58 AD, somewhere in that frame, and it was written when he was at Corinth. And he stayed at Corinth, if you recall, for about three years. They didn't persecute him, so he, they weren't persecuting him, so he hung out for a period of time, and it was at that period of time that he was writing to the church that was in Rome. Now the question comes up, how did the church get to Rome? Who took the gospel there? We, we don't have any account of any specific people. We know in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, there at Pentecost that there were some guests or some strangers, it says, some visitors from Rome. And that's all it says. So we have no idea. Maybe these people, these visitors from Rome who were there at Pentecost, went back home and with them went the gospel. And who took the gospel to Rome? Well, the Holy Spirit, through the believers. It was said at this time that all roads lead to Rome because Rome was the epicenter of the world. The Roman Empire was dominant. The city of Rome is where it stemmed out from and so everywhere ended up coming to Rome because Rome had in reverse, its fingers in everywhere. And so just as all roads lead to Rome, Paul's reasoning was, well then from Rome, the gospel can reach everywhere. And so Paul wanted to get to Rome, and even though he had not yet been there, he was writing to the church that was there. And we saw at the end of last week when he was actually there at Rome, how people from Rome came to meet him. They already knew about him. How? Well, probably because of this book. Because this book was already circulating as he had written it and sent it on ahead of him. But let's read verses 1 through 6 and start off. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to, to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Kind of a long introduction and he's not through. He, he really starts with quite an introduction. And again, it's because he really doesn't know anyone there. And so he's talking to everybody there and he's laying a foundation here. First of all, I want to look at Paul, a, a servant. And the word servant is the word doulos in the King James and other translations. It might say a bond servant. And what that means is one who serves willingly, a slave who is willing to be a slave. It comes from Exodus when a person who was enslaved by someone after a period of seven years would want to continue on service with that person. They would make themselves a bond servant. They would go up to them and they would get an earring. They would put a, an awl through their ear and it would signify that they are no longer just a slave, but they are a bond slave. In other words, I want to work for you for life. In seven years, I have my freedom, but I don't want to be set free. I want to continue serving you. It's my choice. Paul was a servant by choice, a bond servant. And then his name, Paul, we, we know from chapter 9, his name was originally Saul. Saul was a Hebrew name after the king. It means prayed for. When and why did his name change? Because the next chapter he becomes Paul, and we don't know why. Was it God changing his name like he did with Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel or Cephas to Peter? Why did his name get changed? We, we don't have record of it. But we see in his conversion that God told him that he had to take this message to the Gentiles. Saul was a very Jewish name. Paul was a very Greek name. Paul may have at the very beginning said, this is my mission to reach the Gentiles, so I am going to change the name that will be one that they can now identify with. And he actually changed his name to Paul, which means little one. Again, we don't know for sure, but that seems to fit. Which makes me wonder, what should our names be? If God was going to give you a name, what would it be? What has he called you to do, and how would your name better fit that? Again, our society is a little bit different. We have names that stem from every nationality, and so it's not as big a deal as it was back then. But how can God use us, and how, how willing are we to give up something like our own name to be now identified with him? Well, that's my name, you know, it's my heritage. Paul says, you know what, my heritage is now in your hands. I will go where you go. I will be led where you lead me. And so we see from the off start, Paul is a name that the Romans would identify with, a bond servant, a slave, willing to serve. It's something that he chose to do. You know, servants of God, servant of Christ Jesus, many 
were called servants throughout Scripture. Abraham was a servant of God. Moses was a servant of God. David was a servant of God. To be a slave does not have the ring of invitation to it. Who here wants to be a slave? You know, great, we need to sweep the floors and clean up the dog do in the backyard. And, you know, who wants to be a slave? No one's quick to raise their hand for that kind of work. But throughout Scripture, those who were slaves to God were pretty powerful and used powerfully. And again, Paul chose to be a slave, which again asks us the question, do we choose to be slaves to God, to Jesus Christ? Because to be a slave to him means you don't belong to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. In other words, there has to be death to your own self to follow after him. You have to die to your own will, your own desires, so that you can live to God's. And Paul did that. And he did that so powerfully, and he was used so mightily, as did Abraham, as did Moses, as did David, as did so many other slaves. And so the idea of a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus, what does that bring to you? An invitation. Is that something you want to follow after? Is it something that you desire to follow after? And it says called to be an apostle. The idea called is that God called him. Now, Paul's conversion is kind of unique. It's not like most of ours who make a decision and simply fall after God. It was very much like, well, Abraham's or Moses's or some of the prophets, Samuel, even David, where God went out and found them. Remember, God went out to Midian and called Abraham. God was there in the burning bush and called out to Moses, attracted him in there. Samuel was asleep and God called out to Samuel. Eli, or Samuel, the... the um, prophet went out to Eli and looked for David, where he pursued them. And it was the same way with Paul. He was called to be an apostle. God met him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off the donkey, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul has an interesting conversion where he can say, I was called to be an apostle. Now, the word apostle means a messenger, one who's sent out. It's where we get our word missionary from. And so just in these few words, we have this man, Paul, who is given over to be a slave of Jesus Christ, who was called by God to be a messenger. And the whole purpose was set apart for the gospel of God. Not the gospel from God, but the gospel of God. The word gospel means good news. The good news of God. Wow. The good news of God. And he goes on and he tells us what that is. The good news he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. The good news is about Jesus. The good news of God is the person of Jesus Christ. Do we think of the good news of God. Do we think of God as being good news? God has set apart his son Jesus 
to act as a divine separation, basically, to free us. Jesus is God's good news for the human race. It is the payment for the human race. It is the redemption, the buying back of the human race. This is the good news of God. And so many times when people think of God, I don't know if, if they think of it in this way. And, and this good news was promised. God promised good news. Have you ever been promised something good? I, I promise that, you know, when I get home, we're going to have, you know, carne asada, you know. <laughs> I, I, I promise that, you know, when... When this happens, this will be there. I promise I'll pick you up at this time. I promise. The idea of a promise is that, you know, something is going to take place. And God promised good news through the scriptures. And, and here Paul talking to those who are in Rome. Some, no doubt, are Jewish, but many are not. He connects them to the scriptures, telling them, this good news of God concerning Jesus was promised in the scriptures. It's not just something I made up. This is something that is connected to something else. This was talked about years ago. God promised you good news. Man, that just makes you feel good. Because I like to be promised things. You know, I, whenever someone promises me something... It's usually good, you know, unless you were a kid, I promise you're going to get a beating when you get home or something like that. <laughs> but most of the time, the idea of a promise is, is something good. And so here God is promising through the scriptures good news. Paul wrote about this as well in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the, on the third day according to the scriptures. It's about Jesus and it was talked about in scripture. So the prophet Moses throughout David prophesied about Jesus, the good news of God that is for us, that is our benefit. He's been promised to us according to the scriptures. And, and what I like about him bringing the scriptures into this is he's bringing a connection of God that God has been at work and is continuing his work. That you cannot separate yourself from where God began and it began with the person of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham has continued and it's still going on. There, there's this one part in the scripture in Genesis, I believe it's in chapter 24, where Joseph tells his sons as they're going and they're in Egypt and he's about to die and he says, don't let me stay here. After I'm dead, you need to carry me out of Egypt because God promised me the, I would live in the promised land and that would be my dwelling place. And so when I die, you need to take my bones out of here. 
And then in Exodus, I think it's chapter 13, Moses takes the bones of Joseph. And that's a weird thing for us, you know. What are you carrying some dead man's bones for? And he carries them out of Egypt. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Joshua finally gets into the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. And we see in the end of Joshua, chapter 24, that Joshua buries the bones of Joseph in the land that he promised 400 years later. That's a lot of years to be taking some guy's bones. Why? Because this is the promise God made. We believe it. We are connected to this man, Joseph. And this is the fulfillment that God told him this would happen. And it happened. The promise of God is the good news of the person of Jesus Christ that is given to you and me. It is ours. It is something that God told to the prophets before us. And it is sure. And it belongs to us who believe. The promise of God. What, what a powerful statement. Wow, I wonder how much I'm going to get done here. Okay, let, let's move on. I hope you understand that God has promised you something and has delivered that promise. He's delivered that promise through the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't let you down. He didn't forget about you. He fulfilled his promise. Just like he said. The promise is the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, it says, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, regarding his son, he, he talks about a descendant of David and then he talks about through the spirit of holiness. And Jesus had this kind of, if you would, dual life going. He, had the, he lived in these two spheres. He was the descendant of David, who was a lowly servant, but then through the resurrection was born again, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit into power. It was after the resurrection that Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, in Matthew 28. Before that, he came as a servant to die, to identify with us, to fulfill the role of the servant or the seed of David. But after the resurrection, he takes on a new role. It is that of conqueror, that of the victor. He is the risen king. Victorious, the gates of hell cannot prevail against him. All power has been given into him. Authority, death no longer has a sting. He is victorious over death. And so Jesus is both the descendant of David as well as of the Holy Spirit of holiness, the spirit of holiness, and who's declared with power to be the Son of God. And it was through the resurrection. The resurrection is a big deal. It really is. It is what takes 
and separates the men from the boys, so to speak. It's what takes Jesus and puts him up here and puts everyone else down here. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. No one else has conquered death. Except Jesus. Oh, sure, you know, Buddha might have some good things to say and Confucius and, you know, Mohammed and you could, whoever you want to try and lift up, you can only lift them up so high they don't get to this place that Jesus occupies alone. It is by the power of the resurrection that he has this place. It was after the resurrection that Jesus took on this role of the victor. And, and that's what Paul is talking about. He, he is connected to the person of David, the king, fulfilling the genealogy the scriptures talked about. But now he's fulfilling another role, and that is one of the risen Messiah, the victor. Jesus said that I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned and he has crossed over from death to life. The importance of Jesus' resurrection is that it transfers to us. That because he lives, we can live also. And so just as Jesus crossed from death to life, he is now able to bring that life to us. And you see, our hope is in the risen Lord. Our hope is in the man who conquered death, Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is at. It's not in the man who died, it's in the man who died and rose again. As you speak of the crucifixion of Jesus, it is now connected to his resurrection. We look back and we see the crucifixion through the resurrection. And we live in this hope of promise that because he lives, we can live also. That we too can be crossed from death to life. I mean, Paul talks about this in Ephesians as well as 1 Corinthians 15. It is an important part of our salvation. Salvation that God has given to us. In verse 5, i, I got to move on. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also that among those who are called belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to him by faith. We are connected to him. And so we are part of that inheritance. We get to enjoy the fruit that Jesus enjoyed by conquering death because we are now connected to him, adopted into his family. Verse 7, it says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So again, we see that Paul is writing this to everyone who is there at Rome, who is part of this family. And as he talks to them, he says, those who are loved by God. I love that. You at Rome who are loved by God. How do I know I'm loved by God? Well, do you know what Jesus did for you? It's all connected back to the person of Jesus Christ, the promise of God. 
the good news of God that is found in Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's love for you, loved by God and called to be saints. Or it could be translated called as saints. You know, we are all called saints who believe in Jesus Christ. To the saints that be at this church, Paul would say. I know a lot of times in our minds we think, well, saints are those people who they make statues and stained glass windows out of. You know, I mean, the, you have to die to be a saint or you have to be brought in by the church. But actually all those who believe in God are called to be saints. It, it is those who are set apart. That's what this word means. You're separated for God's use. You're a saint. And verse 7, the latter part, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting here is we've heard this salutation in most of Paul's epistles. He writes grace and peace. Grace is actually the greeting that was given by most who were Gentile. They would say grace to you. It was their greeting. So when they would see one another, it'd say grace. They would offer each other this greeting. And for the Hebrews, they would say the word shalom, peace. So the Gentiles, when they would see one another, they would say grace. The Hebrews, when they would see one another, they'd say peace. Paul is saying grace and peace to you through Jesus Christ. He's bringing these two worlds in. And he does it beautifully because you cannot know the peace of God until you first experience the grace of God. And how do you experience the grace of God? Through Jesus Christ. So grace and peace to you through Jesus Christ. Verse 8 he says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers all the times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. Paul continues and he, and he says he thanks God through Jesus Christ for them because their faith is being reported all over the world. All over the world means throughout Rome. Throughout the Roman Empire was considered the known world at that time. And so the faith that was in these believers was being heard everywhere. They were starting something going. What's great about this is they were doing it and there was no name behind it. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't Apollos. Who was behind this spreading the good news? It was the Spirit in the believers. I, I just, I think that is so important because we are so used to identifying a work with a person. I mean, I've mentioned John Wesley. I mentioned Martin Luther. We can mention Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, whoever. We have these ideas of names that are behind these incredible works. But here, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is spreading out through the Roman Empire through who? The people. Through you and me. Just us. And what a remarkable thing it is to see God at work without needing a man to be in charge. He never does. It doesn't take a person. It takes a community who believes to change the community around them. 
And I, I think it's wonderful that this was spreading out, but there was no man behind it or under it. We have no record of who's in charge of the church in Rome. There isn't anyone. It's the Spirit of God himself at work. And as he's there, he says he's desiring to get to them, to preach the gospel of his son. And God is his witness how he constantly remembers them in prayers at all times. Imagine, you know, there's this work taking place. They don't have a name, a man who's over it that we know of. But it's growing, it's flourishing. And you want to see that work continue. When I smuggled Bibles into China back in 1986, we had known that there was an incredible revival taking place in China. But they didn't have Bibles. It didn't stop the gospel from being preached, but it just they didn't have a whole lot of tools to be used. And so we wanted to help them. We wanted to get there and take these Bibles in so that they can continue that work. Paul is thinking how he wants to get to these people and how he, he tells them that he might be able to even impart something to them. But he starts and he says his prayers with them all the time. He's always thinking about them. He's always wanting to help them. He's always wanting and praying for them. It's kind of like this. Have you ever had one of those coughs where throughout the day, it's always <clears throat> it, like this tickle in your throat. You can't get rid of it. It's all throughout the day, you know, <clears throat> you're clearing your throat throughout the day. I, I always do that. My daughter's doing that right now. You know, she's got this little tickle in her th cough, and so we're just like, <clears throat> you can tell where she's at. There she is. She's in the kitchen right now. <clears throat> oh, she's in the living room. <clears throat> she's going to her bedroom. You just hear that. It's constantly there. Well, like a tickle in his throat, the Roman church was in Paul's mind. He, he could, all throughout the day, it was there. It was just on his heart. It was on his mind. He couldn't stop thinking about them and his prayers at all times that at last he might be able to get to them. In verse 11 it says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. I know you guys are there. Your faith is being spread. Oh, how I want to get to, get to you so I can help you further. What a great attitude. I want to get to you so I can help you do more. What if we had that attitude just where we, you know, I, I want to get over there so I can help you to do more of what you're doing, to help you be strong in your faith. And what does it take to make a person strong in faith? A lot of times we think, well, I want to, you know, we want to get help. And what do we think help is? It's interesting, I heard someone talking about a summit that was in Africa by a lot of leaders. And there were a lot of leaders that were there from Africa and there were leaders from around the world who came to the summit to try and help that nation in their poverty. And all these nations from outside of Africa were wanting to bring money. How can we spend money? How can we spend money? But those who were the leaders in Africa said, you know, you, you want to bring us money, but money will not fix the problem that we have here. We don't have a vision for our people and a future. And so how do you pour money into something that is hopeless? It just goes down the drain and it will not change or fix the problem that is in our country. Our vision is for people 
Not to give them money, but to give them hope and give them a reason to work out of this situation. Because if you just give us money, we will stay here, the money will be spent, and we will not leave the situation we are in. And I thought, that's interesting that the people who are there in it see the answer as being help us to work our way out of this, give us hope, give us a reason to work, give us something we can build on that gets us out of here. And those who are on the outside say, well, just pour money into it. And, and isn't that our easy fix? Here, give us some money, give us some money, give us some money. Are, are, is the situation changing? Well, no, but, you know, this week's okay. Parents, we can do that with our kids. You know, I need this, I need this. And pretty soon you give them money, you give them money, you give them money, and they don't develop responsibility. That's what we should have done. <clears throat> Hold on, I've got to make a phone call. <laughs> and so Paul wants to come there. He wants them to be strong. And that's his point, is not that... It's just that they would be founded in this faith that they would have a stability in faith that would not be shaken and it's so great that he, he comes to give to them not for any other reason I, I can't wait I think about you all, always I want to get to you so that I can bring to you something that's going to make you strong verse 12 it says that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. The Apostle Paul needed to be encouraged by their faith. Do you realize that I need to be encouraged by your faith as much as you need to be encouraged by mine? Do you realize that others need to be encouraged by your faith? There are people you know who I don't know. They're never going to be encouraged by my faith because I don't know them. But they will be encouraged by your faith. Paul wanted to mutually encourage each other. And again, this is something that we lose in the church. I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday. We have this hierarchy that develops where we need an establishment that we call church. And remember at the beginning we talked about, you know, we're not trying to start a church. We are the church. What we need to do is not try and establish something. We need to recognize what we already are. That we already are the church. That have been called by God to, to do these good things. And Paul is saying he wants to get to them that he also might be encouraged by their faith and they by his. Verse 13, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So Paul is saying, I keep wanting to get to Rome. And we know the, through the book of Acts the hardships that Paul's had. He's been beaten. He's had to take detours. He had to stay in places, go into hiding. He was in Caesarea for two years later on. It's not an easy journey. He can't just cell phone them. He can't, you know, get on a bus, plane. To get to Rome is a journey. He was shipwrecked trying to get there, we read. I mean, this was a lot of work. He wants to get there. And the reason he's not there, he's saying, is it's not because I don't want to be. 
I've just had to deal with a lot of things. But in the meantime, the gospel is spreading to the people that I'm at. Verse 14, it says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. In other words, he's saying, I, I am obligated to preach this gospel to everyone. And especially to the Greeks, and I might say the, the barbarians, it's the educated and the uneducated. This good news message is for everybody, and I want to get it to you. I'm obligated to you. God has told me that I'm supposed to, and I'm trying my best to do it. Verse 15 says, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First the Jew, then the Gentile. Now, I want to talk about this verse because it's very important that we understand the context that Paul is writing this in. Paul is saying, I am trying to get to you. I want to get this gospel message to you in Rome. I've been prevented from getting there. It's not because I don't want to get there. There is a thought that they believe that Paul would not bring the gospel to Rome because, after all, Rome is not only the epicenter of the world, it is the epicenter of power of the world, and that power is not Christian at all. It is not Jewish at all. It is very heathen. It is very ungodly. Paul is saying, I want to get the gospel to you. And then he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. It doesn't mean that he's not embarrassed. When we think of, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, we think, well, oh gee, I don't want to say I'm a Christian because if I say I'm a Christian, they're going to make fun of me or something like that. But that's really not what he's talking about. Is He's not saying, I don't think that this gospel of Jesus Christ is unable to meet the task that is there at Rome. I don't think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is less than what it's going to meet there at Rome. In fact, he's saying, I believe that it is the power of God to change salvation for everyone who believes, both for the Jews first and to the Greeks. Paul's idea is that the gospel that I believe in, the gospel that you believe in, it is the power of God to bring salvation to Rome. It's the power for the Jews and it's the power for the Gentiles and I don't think that it is not able to meet the task. It is. It is able to meet the task that awaits it there at Rome. I can't wait to get there for you. It's not because I'm ashamed. I've just been hindered. And it's really important that we recognize that the idea that Paul has behind this verse is that the gospel of God, Jesus Christ, is able to save and change anybody. Salvation is twofold. It's salvation from the wrath of God that is on all of us until we come under his grace. But it's also salvation to become something. 
It is salvation from God's wrath, and it is salvation into God's family. It is to make us whole. And the salvation of God is something that continues in our life. We tend to think of salvation, well, I got saved at this date, on this time, at this point. But we know that Paul says that we're still waiting for the redemption of our bodies and that we're still waiting for salvation to take place. Salvation is a process. It is a work of God continuing in us, transforming us, moving us from one place to the next place, to moving us to holiness and holiness and holiness. As deep is calling into deep. He's calling us to a, a deeper and more committed relationship. Salvation is a work of God, and Paul says, it is up for the task. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's able to meet you right where you're at and change your life. It is the power of God to salvation. The power of God. When you think of the power of God, what do you think of? Splitting the Red Sea, fire on the mountain, raising from the dead. The power of God. You know, Fourth of July, we were watching the fireworks here and you're seeing them and boom, it's like, oh wow, that's big. And then I was thinking, wow, that's really not that big. This is just fireworks that over here. You know, I'm sure in Iraq and some places they're they're a lot bigger. You know, watching the military channel and watching some of these things like, oh man, now that's big. And then you see an atomic bomb, wow, that's big. And then you hear of supernovas, you know, that explode suns, wow, that's really big. That's all just part of God's creation. The power of God to salvation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we would get a hold of the gospel of God that is in the person of Jesus Christ, then we have hold of the power of God to change the lives of anybody. Anybody. Wise, foolish, Jew, Gentile, Roman, gang member, drug addict, religious person. The good news of Jesus Christ is able to change lives. It's able to change our lives. And it is doing just that. Okay, let's stop there. Oh, well, this is probably going to be a little slower than when we went through the book of Acts, but hopefully it'll be impactful. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, there is so much here that I, I feel inadequate to address all the things that are here. But, God, it's not up to me. I thank you for your spirit who makes your word alive and empowers it to our souls and, and quickens these things to us. God, change us. Give us this power to recognize that it is in your son, Jesus Christ. And, and that message that we are able to handle and, and, and give out that your power rests. And, and might we take Paul as our example once again, who was a slave willingly, given himself for you, for these people, that desired, Lord, to see these things take place in the lives of these people who was constantly mindful of them in prayer. Lord, might we
be the same? Might we see that we don't need any man to teach us when we have your Holy Spirit? And we don't need an okay from an organization to do a work that you provoke us to do. We just need to be your church. We have within the things we believe the very power that belongs to you that can change lives. God, help us to embrace and see that. Help us to get hold of that. And may it not only change the lives of those around us, but may it change our life as well. God, thank you for just this powerful book. I pray as we get into it, you would give me wisdom and how to present it clearly. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that it would change us, that it would move us, that it would give us the ability to see what it is you are doing and desire to do in us, through us, and around us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and we ask your blessings. In, in Jesus' name, amen.